Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. When eight-year-old Katrina opened the front door of her grandparents' home in Covina, California, she was delighted to see Santa standing on her doorstep. It was Christmas Eve and all of her aunts, uncles, siblings, and cousins were gathered for the annual Ortega family celebration. The house was lit up with thousands of twinkling fairy lights and presents spilled out from underneath the tree. Santa was wheeling a trolley with a huge gift sticking out of the top and he smiled as Katrina opened the door. He reached towards the girl, but instead of offering a gift, he pulled out a gun. Santa shot Katrina in the face. Before the clock struck midnight, Christmas cheer was replaced by chaos and a whole family would be slaughtered by one of their own. This is Monsters. Bruce Jeffrey Pardo was born in 1963 and lived most of his life in California. As a young adult, he completed his engineering studies at California State University and began working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Cañada, Flintridge. He was highly skilled in his work and soon secured a position as an electrical engineer at ITT Electronic Systems who contracted to the United States military. With this promotion and a six-figure income to match, he was able to buy a substantial home in the affluent area of San Fernando. In his spare time, Bruce was a volunteer usher at the local Catholic church where he regularly signed up to watch over the children's mass on a Sunday night. He was known as very outgoing and he loved to be the center of attention. In 2004, Bruce met the woman who would become his wife, Sylvia Orza, after they were introduced by a family member. They seemed like a perfect match. He, an outgoing and friendly guy, and her, a dedicated single mother of three kids. By that stage, Sylvia had been a solo mother for some years. Despite the circumstances and with her parents' support, she had managed to not only survive, but thrive, and she was looking forward to a bright future with her much-loved children. While she hadn't been looking for another relationship when she met Bruce, that all changed. Bruce represented family, stability, and dependability, something she decided she was ready for. The two hit it off right away. Bruce had been a bachelor for a while with no kids of his own, and Sylvia came prepackaged with the family she had often talked about wanting for himself. She was further reassured of their compatibility when she introduced Bruce to the kids. He took to parenting like a natural. It was almost like he'd done it before. After two years of dating, the pair married and began to set up a life together. In the years before meeting Bruce, Sylvia had managed to save just over $30,000, which she hoped to put toward a home. Now that she was married, it made sense to buy a house with her new husband. 
Sylvia kept working full-time, and while she didn't earn nearly as much as Bruce, the couple were by no means struggling. In contrast, when they married, Bruce and Sylvia upgraded to an even more substantial home than the one Bruce had lived in before, and there was no shortage of luxuries. Bruce had a garage filled with a Hummer, an Escalade, and a boat. By all accounts, Bruce was a successful, loving family man, but as is usually the case with monsters, behind closed doors he was anything but. While Bruce was known to outsiders as a kind and friendly man, inside the marriage he was extremely controlling, cold, and distant. Sylvia had come into the marriage with three kids. Up until meeting Bruce, she had worked tirelessly to support them on her own. And when they married, he assured her that he would treat them as if they were his own, just like he had when they were dating. But once the marriage papers were signed, his attitude towards them abruptly changed. Bruce refused to set up a joint checking account, and he rebuffed any idea of paying for anything that had to do with the kids. He told Sylvia that the children were her responsibility alone. It was her choice to have them, and they were of no concern of his. Sylvia was working as a secretary at a plant nursery, and her wage was a pittance against what Bruce earned, and any of the luxuries she wanted or needed had to come from her own pocket. Despite being of substantially greater financial means, Bruce also made Sylvia contribute part of her earnings to a shared savings account, though she wasn't allowed to actually spend money from the account. Bruce never revealed what the savings were going to be used for. Still, Sylvia felt she had no choice. Bruce was in the power position and he quashed all of the alternatives that she suggested. They paid equally for the mortgage on the house and expenses like utilities and food, but Sylvia was left with very little after contributing her share to the savings account. While Bruce got to splurge on any luxuries, she was effectively broke in a fancy house. Within months of signing their marriage license, the honeymoon was over and Sylvia was left feeling like she was only there to satisfy Bruce's needs. She felt like a means to an end, except she didn't know what the end was. She wasn't wealthy and didn't come from an affluent family. Still, there was a nagging feeling that something wasn't right. Just 18 months into their marriage, she would come to realize that those instincts were spot on. Bruce was forced to reveal to her that he had in fact fathered a child in a previous relationship, but that was not what shocked Sylvia most. Six years prior to meeting Sylvia, Bruce had been in a relationship with a woman by the name of Elena, who would go on to have his child. When the boy named Matthew was 13 months old, Elena went out shopping and left her son with Bruce as she had many times before. While Matthew played outside, Bruce watched TV inside. Let me make this clear, he let a 13-month-old play outside alone. Sometime later, Elena returned home and found Bruce cradling the boy in his arms and crying uncontrollably. He told her that he had gone to check on Matthew and found him face down in the swimming pool. The child had managed to sneak out the door while Bruce was distracted by the TV and had silently slipped into the swimming pool. Elena called emergency services and the child was taken by helicopter to a nearby hospital. Medical teams spent hours that day repeatedly resuscitating Matthew and attempting to stabilize him. He was admitted to an intensive care unit while life-saving treatments were administered to him. Bruce never left his side throughout the whole ordeal. Day and night, he sat with his son, at times cradling and stroking his head and at others staring blankly at the hospital walls. 
After a few weeks of intervention, medical specialists determined that the loss of oxygen to Matthew's brain had caused permanent and irreversible damage. He would be a paraplegic and would require around-the-clock care for the rest of his life. While there was no reason to believe that the event was anything other than a tragic accident, Bruce's decisions after being told about his son's prognosis did raise some serious questions. The day after being told the dreadful news, Bruce broke up with Elena and left their home. But he didn't just leave Elena, he also abandoned his son, and he left them both with more than $350,000 worth of medical bills. When Elena asked for a contribution towards his son's medical expenses, Bruce refused to cough it up. Elena was forced to sue Bruce's homeowner's insurance in order to gain some financial support. She was awarded just a fraction of the total amount required to pay for Matthew's ongoing care. After that, Bruce cut off all contact with Elena and his son. He never paid a cent in child support, and he never spoke to either one of them again. It was only when Sylvia discovered the child's name in Bruce's tax declaration as being his dependent child that he was forced to come clean. Bruce had been exploiting his disabled child's medical condition in order to achieve a tax break. Classic. As soon as she found this out, Sylvia moved into a separate bedroom from the one she had shared with Bruce and began making arrangements to leave the marriage. She decided to stay away from the home on weekends, and in March of 2008, the couple officially separated after just two years of marriage. Sylvia was once again a single mother. That should have been the end of the story. She should have been able to get on with her life, and Bruce should have returned to his deceptive, responsibility-dodging ways. But you probably know by now that no justified deed goes unpunished. Sylvia asked Bruce if she and the children could stay in the family home for a couple of months, just until the end of the school year in order to minimize disruption for the kids. To her surprise, Bruce agreed to the arrangement. But that weekend, when Sylvia left the house with the children to attend a relative's birthday party, Bruce tossed all of her belongings out into the driveway and changed the locks. Sylvia was effectively left on the street. She and the children were forced to return to live with her parents that very same day. It was then that she knew she would never reconcile with Bruce and she met with a lawyer. A week later, she filed for divorce and requested $3,166 a month in spousal support as well as payment for her attorney's fees. Sylvia also wanted her share of the savings account. By the time the couple separated, the fund that they had both contributed to totaled more than $88,000. Yet when Sylvia went to withdraw her half, the account had been decimated and there was just $17,000 remaining. Bruce had cleaned her out, and he continued to fight tooth and nail to deny Sylvia any financial benefit from the divorce. Meanwhile, Bruce was ordered to pay Sylvia more than $1,700 a month in alimony, beginning immediately. When Sylvia received her first check, it bounced. She never received another check after that. In June, the same month that Bruce was due to begin alimony payments, he bought a 9mm Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun. At the same time, his employer discovered some discrepancies in the billing hours attributed to Bruce's clients. After a thorough investigation, they found that Bruce had been billing his clients for work that either had never happened or was billed for more time than the job had taken to complete. In other words, he was inflating his billing hours in order to increase his pay. 
After discovering Bruce's fraud, he was terminated from his job with immediate effect. He attempted to file for state unemployment, but his application was denied. This meant Bruce had no means to pay his mortgage, let alone his alimony to Sylvia, and to make matters worse, he also had $31,000 of credit card debt, which was overdue. But somehow, he had enough money to buy a second 9mm Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun. Bruce returned to the divorce negotiations and convinced the court to suspend his requirement to pay Sylvia any ongoing alimony. Bruce's statement read, quote, I was not given a severance package from my last employer at termination and I am not receiving any other income. I am desperately seeking work and have since applied to many companies, resulting in several job interviews. I ask for support just until I gain employment. Bruce failed to mention that he was terminated for fraud. However, the court did award Sylvia an amount of $10,000, her wedding ring, and the family dog which Bruce doted upon. Bruce was allowed to keep his home they had shared and all of his toys including the cars and the boat. Bruce told one of his friends that his payout to Sylvia amounted to her taking him to the cleaners, so he filed a motion in which he objected to the arrangement. His argument was that Sylvia had no need for the money. She didn't have rent to pay seeing as she was living with her parents, she had bought a nice car, was having regular massages and private golf lessons and was going away frequently on luxury holidays. Apart from living with her parents and financing a new car, the other claims about Sylvia were untrue. In fact, Bruce requested that Sylvia pay him alimony and also cover his attorney's fees. It was she who had filed for divorce after all. Ultimately, though, Bruce's claim for spousal support and his objection to Sylvia's payout were both denied. After waiting for the state-mandated one-month period between gun purchases to pass, Bruce purchased his third 9mm Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun. On the same day, he visited a local tailor and ordered a custom-made Santa suit designed exactly to fit his measurements. At that time, it was September, three months away from Christmas. He then waited for another 30 days, and in October, he purchased a fourth 9mm Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun. In the same month, he made arrangements to visit a friend in Iowa where he purchased 16 magazines for the Sig Sauers. Each magazine could hold 18 rounds and far exceeded the legal capacity allowed in California at the time. In November, after waiting another 30 days, you guessed it, Bruce bought a fifth Sig Sauer. With his arsenal complete, Bruce had only two things left on his to-do list. Wait for his moment in the spotlight and plan his attack. Just one week before Christmas in 2008, Sylvia and Bruce appeared in court to finalize their divorce paperwork. By then, Bruce had also finalized his plan. Sylvia's parents, Joseph and Alicia Ortega, loved hosting their annual Christmas Eve family get-together at their home in Covina. Joe and Alice had five adult children who would bring all of the grandkids around for food, games, and presents. Each year, more family members attended the gathering as children were born and the older children got partners. The party in 2008 was the biggest yet, with 30 adults and children celebrating the holiday season together. That year had been particularly hard on Joe and Alicia's youngest daughter, Sylvia. After a chaotic, short-lived marriage, she had moved back in with them to give her kids some stability and a safe place to call home. 
As a family, they were looking forward to helping Sylvia get back on her feet, and with the divorce only just finalized, Christmas marked the beginning of her new chapter. As the party wound down that evening, family members began to pack up their things and get ready to leave. It was 11.30pm and the peaceful cul-de-sac that Joe and Alicia called home was silent. This is why a neighbor thought it was odd to see a blue Dodge Caliber pull loudly onto the street and come to an abrupt halt. Her fears were alleviated when Santa emerged from the car, dressed in an unusually well-fitting suit. He unloaded whatever was in the back of the vehicle into a large trolley-looking thing and began to walk towards the Ortega's house. As the man dressed as Santa passed her home, he waved at the neighbor and called out, Merry Christmas. The neighborhood was about to find out that Christmas would be anything but merry that year. Standing outside the house, Santa would no doubt have heard the sound of laughter, clinking glasses, and Christmas music. When he knocked on the door, eight-year-old Katrina, who was the daughter of Sylvia's sister, answered the door excitedly. She was thrilled to see Santa standing on their doorstep with a gift in his hand and behind him, a trolley full to the top with more presents. But her glee was short-lived when Santa instead pulled a handgun from inside the gift and shot her in the face. Not once, but twice. That's right, Santa began what would become his revenge massacre by shooting an eight-year-old child in the face. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah. As you would expect, with the sounds of those gunshots, the adults in the house flew into a wild panic. One of them ran to the door and immediately recognized the man in the Santa suit as Bruce. He tried to warn his family, but his efforts were in vain. Bruce pushed his way into the home with one of his Sig Sours in each hand and opened fire indiscriminately at the family members. Children and adults ran from the house, with some being caught in the crossfire and others being hit point-blank as they huddled over their children in an effort to protect them from the crazed Santa. One person leapt from the second story and another smashed through a window to escape the gunfire. All through the house lay wounded and murdered members of the wider Ortega family, but Santa wasn't done yet. He had more twisted gifts to share with the woman who had dared scorn him and the family that had supported her to do so. Out of his trolley, Bruce unwrapped a large package which turned out to be a rolling air compressor which Bruce had used his engineering skills to transform into a weapon. Instead of compressed air inside the canister, it was filled with racing fuel which Bruce sprayed throughout the house. As the gasoline transformed into flames, Bruce fled the house, leaving his injured victims to burn to death. Instead of twinkling Christmas lights, the neighborhood was now lit up with flames. Sylvia's sister, Letitia, managed to escape the flames and called 911, reporting, quote, He's shooting my whole family. My mom's house is on fire. We need someone immediately. My daughter's been shot. She was shot in the face. By the time emergency services arrived, flames were shooting 50 feet into the air and there was no way anyone could attempt to enter the home to rescue any survivors. 
It took 80 firefighters more than two hours to douse the flames enough to be able to confirm exactly how many family members had died. By then, it was Christmas Day. When the fire was sufficiently dampened, investigators completed a walkthrough of what was left of the house. They knew from family members that there were multiple victims inside, but nothing could have prepared even seasoned fire investigators for what they found. Inside the house, they discovered the charred remains of nine victims who were burned so badly that they hardly resembled bodies at all. Some were so badly scorched that not even dental records could identify them, and DNA testing and medical records had to be used to confirm who was who. While the identities took time to be officially confirmed, the family members who had survived knew that nine of their own would never be coming home again. In one brutal swoop, entire generations were wiped out. The victims were Sylvia, Bruce's ex-wife and primary target, Sylvia's sister Alicia and her son Michael, Sylvia's brother Charles and his wife Sherry, Sylvia's brother James Jr. and his wife Teresa, and Sylvia's parents Joseph and Alice. Other injuries included a 16-year-old girl who was shot in the back and had managed to escape as well as Sylvia's sister who had jumped from the second floor window and broke her ankle. The youngest victim was Sylvia's 17-year-old nephew. Miraculously, the 8-year-old girl who had opened the door to Bruce and taken two shots to the face managed to survive. She was left with severe but non-life-threatening injuries. Thirteen children were orphaned as a result of the slayings and two others lost one parent. Autopsies would later reveal that some of the victims had died from being shot point-blank execution-style before the fire. Sylvia had died in this way as well as her sister Alicia and her 80-year-old father Joseph. Other victims had survived being shot and then burned to death in the fire. But Bruce's story doesn't stop there. While his victims lay dead and dying, he made his getaway. He had gone to great lengths to not only meticulously plan the attack, but also his escape plan. Ironically, given his intelligence and detailed planning, he made one fatal mistake. When he coated the home with the high-octane fuel, Bruce no doubt intended on igniting the home as he left, leaving it to burn with as many victims inside as possible. But what he hadn't accounted for was the other ignition source in the home the two open fireplaces which were being used to add warmth to the cozy Christmas feeling during the party that night. As Bruce sprayed the gasoline throughout the home, the flames from the fireplace ignited the fuel unexpectedly and Bruce was caught up in his own crime. Before he knew it, he was standing in the middle of the home as it burnt, rather than watching it combust from behind him as he fled. And because of that, the Santa suit, which he had so specifically ordered, also went up in flames. The Santa outfit was an integral part of Bruce's plan. He knew that it would conceal both his identity and his intentions that night. It also had the added benefit of giving him easy access to the home. I mean, who wouldn't open the door for Santa on Christmas Eve? What he didn't count on was that his suit was going to be touched by fire, and as the polyester material burnt, it melted to his skin. In fact, the flames were so intense that the material liquefied and caused third-degree burns on Bruce's arms and torso. But no matter the pain he felt, Bruce wasn't about to give up. He refused to let Sylvia and her family have the last laugh. In his twisted mind, there was still a chance to get away. Bruce ran to the Dodge Caliber that he had rented especially for the occasion and peeled what was left of the custom-made Santa suit from his skin and put on his regular street clothes. 
He knew that emergency services would arrive soon to try to tame the flames and his street clothes would help him blend in. Plus, he had more stops in mind that he wouldn't need the Santa suit for. Bruce left the scene of his massacre while his victims were still screaming for their lives. He calmly drove 30 miles away to his brother's house in Silmar for the next stage of his plan. Meanwhile, the surviving members of the Ortega family had been able to identify their attacker to authorities. The whole family knew Bruce and pointed officers toward where he lived. While firefighters attempted to control the blaze, police issued an all-alerts bulletin to try to track him down. A huge manhunt got underway, but unexpectedly the police's target was delivered to them at 3.30 a.m. on Christmas Day when Bruce's brother Brad dialed 911. He reported that he had just returned from a Christmas party to find his brother lying on his couch in a pool of blood. The mention of Bruce's name immediately triggered a full-scale police response. Inside the house, officers found Bruce as his brother had reported. In Bruce's hand was one of the handguns and another lay on the ground next to him. Strapped to his leg was a girdle wrapped in plastic wrap containing $17,000 in cash. Next to him on the couch was a one-way plane ticket to Canada, except Bruce wasn't going to make his flight. Brad had failed to mention one thing in his 911 call. Bruce had driven to his brother's home, entered the living room, put one of the Sig Sours to his own head, and pulled the trigger. He was found wearing the remains of his Santa suit. He was so badly burnt that the material had fused together with the skin on his body. It was clear he had tried to remove the suit, but had been unable to do so. His skin was burnt and blistered, and his burns were weeping. There's no doubt that he would have been in excruciating pain. There's some justice in that. How fitting that the suit he had ordered more than three months earlier was what led to his downfall. The first piece of his plan, alongside his Sig Sauer, would end up marking the end of his killing spree. But Bruce's death didn't bring an end to the investigation. There was evidence to be gathered and pieces of a family to try to put back together. Outside of Brad's home was the rental car which Bruce had used to get to and from the scene of the massacre. Through the window, police could see hundreds of rounds of ammunition spilt out over the back seat. Alongside the ammunition were Bruce's other three Sig Sours, and alongside those were a series of cables set up in a complex arrangement. Officers suddenly realized that the vehicle was booby-trapped and had been designed to cause maximum damage to law enforcement. This made it a job for the Los Angeles Bomb Squad. Along with their robot, they attempted to defuse the devices so the vehicle could be examined. But during the course of the diffusion, one of the booby traps triggered and the vehicle exploded. Bruce had left a pipe bomb rigged up inside the car and the ammunition was the perfect explosive. The car and all of the evidence it contained were completely destroyed. Thankfully, nobody was hurt in the explosion thanks to the use of the robot. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, Pasadena police received a call from a lawyer reporting a suspicious vehicle parked at the end of his driveway. As it turned out, it was the very same lawyer who had represented Sylvia during her divorce from Bruce. When police realized the connection to the massacre, the vehicle was immediately investigated. Once again, the bomb squad was called in as there was a high probability that this car was booby-trapped as well. After a detailed examination, the vehicle was cleared and investigators were able to take a look inside. 
Inside the car were maps of the U.S. and Mexico, as well as weeks worth of food and water and computers worth thousands of dollars. The car was also fitted with a spare gas tank. All evidence pointed to Bruce having made arrangements for a very long drive. After examining the second vehicle, it appeared as though the plane ticket to Canada was a decoy. Its convenient placement was designed to confuse authorities and lead them one way while Bruce escaped in the opposite direction, likely down to Mexico. Bruce's real plan had been to kill as many members of Sylvia's family as possible and drive to Sylvia's lawyer's house and kill him too. Obviously, he didn't like it when people did their jobs. After killing the lawyer, Bruce planned to ditch the rental car and drive his own vehicle filled with supplies down to Mexico to start a new life. Instead, due to the melted suit and the burns he sustained while carrying out his sadistic plan, Bruce ended his life with one final cowardly act. In the process, he robbed his victims and their families of justice. When Bruce's home was pulled apart during the subsequent investigation, officials found more weaponry including a tactical shotgun and hundreds more rounds of ammunition. Alongside his weapons arsenal, they found a bomb lab where Bruce had constructed the pipe bomb he used to booby-trap the rental car which was detonated at his brother's home. They also found evidence that Bruce had planned to murder his own mother that night as well. It turns out she had been invited to the Christmas Eve party at the Ortegas, which is where Bruce had intended on killing her. He believed she sided with her ex-daughter-in-law in the divorce and supported Sylvia's decision to leave him. Luckily for her, his mother hadn't been feeling well that evening and decided not to attend the party. Mother's intuition, perhaps? As the community struggled to come to terms with Bruce's slayings, particularly given the time of year, many questions were raised about how a seemingly loving and devoted family man could carry out something so premeditated and callous. Bruce had no criminal record, and his legal history revealed no red flags which would indicate he had the capacity to commit such a crime. But when authorities spoke to former associates of the man, they would discover that while Bruce did not have a history of physical violence, he was a known fraudster and narcissist. He truly believed he was God's gift and that the world revolved around him. Sylvia wasn't the first woman he had controlled. His recent employer wasn't the first to fall prey to his fraud, and Elena, the mother of his child, wasn't the first partner he abandoned. Back in 1989, when Bruce was 26 years old, he had been engaged to a woman he met at work. At the time, it hadn't been long since Bruce had finished his degree. He wasn't earning a great deal of money and still lived at home with his mother. His fiancée, on the other hand, was further along in her career and had a healthy savings account, so they decided that she would pay for their extravagant wedding and lavish honeymoon in Tahiti. With all the arrangements made, they decided to travel separately to the wedding to build the anticipation for their big day, except when it came time to begin the ceremony, Bruce was nowhere to be found. The woman would later discover that Bruce had tricked her when he suggested they set up a joint account to pay for their wedding arrangements. His plan was not to marry her, but to take her money. When his fiancée returned from her forfeited wedding, her bank account was empty and Bruce had disappeared. He used the money to pay for an expensive trip to Palm Springs in Florida while she stood alone at the altar. An FBI profile, which was completed as part of the investigation, found that Bruce had likely suffered from extreme narcissism and obsessive-compulsive disorder. 
Disgustingly, the story of Bruce's killing spree was used by men's rights activists who described Bruce as someone who had been provoked and overwhelmed by the injustice of the divorce court's ruling. Unbelievably, they attempted to defend his actions because of how the court had treated him in the proceedings. In their opinion, the court's actions had caused him to lose his entire family and left him depressed and lonely, which led to the massacre. So, somehow, Bruce was justified in killing nine people with guns and fire because he had to pay his ex-wife $10,000 and she got to keep a ring and a dog. And remember, that was all she got after he had refused to support her children financially throughout their marriage. Even after the divorce, Bruce had kept his home and he would have kept the same lifestyle he was used to if he hadn't attempted to defraud his employer. But yeah, for that, a whole family had to be wiped out and multiple children orphaned. Okay. Katrina, who was eight years old when Bruce shot her in the face, went on to become a gun control activist and has protested for gun reform. Her mother, Leticia, was the only surviving child of Joe and Alice Ortega. As the only one of her siblings who survived the slayings, she was left to try to put her family back together. But with so many missing pieces, it's been a constant struggle. And it's hard to trust anyone when a man who had previously been a member of that family was the one who so coldly ripped it apart by using a bright red suit, an icon of Christmas, to get through their front door. I believe there was also an eviler intention behind Bruce's choice of a Santa suit. Bruce felt like everything had been stolen from him and he wanted to steal the joy of Christmas from as many people as possible that night. And in some ways, he succeeded in his mission. In the wake of the killings, mental health counselors and trauma specialists regularly visited children and families in the neighborhood where the Ortega house had once stood. Understandably, many children in the area had heard about the slayings and expressed fear about Santa being a bad man. Parents had to tell their children that Bruce wasn't the real Santa, that he was a bad man, and that the good Santa was still out there. The wonderment of Christmas was stolen from a whole community that night by a monster in a Santa suit. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.